Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. My name is Wendy Myers, and you can find me on LiveTo110.com. And you can find this video podcast on my YouTube channel, Wendy Live to 110, and on the corresponding blog post. Today, we have one of my favorite people, Dr. Bruce Jones, on the podcast. He is a medical doctor and an expert in hair mineral analysis and metal toxicology. He's actually written a textbook on metal toxicology. And today, we're going to be talking about certain minerals and why you need them or not. Uh, you know, minerals is one of my favorite subjects, so we're going to delve real deep into this subject today. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Live to 110 podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatment that we suggest today on the show. As many of you know, I fell in love with hair mineral analysis when my own health faltered uh, many years ago. I found myself, like many of you do today, I had brain fog. I was exhausted all the time. I was exercising to the point of fatigue, and I just I wasn't losing weight. Um, I had uh, I went to the you know finally sought medical help, and the doctor found that I had adrenal fatigue and thyroid issues. And they found that I had anemia and numerous vitamin deficiencies, vitamin D, B12, and many, many others, even vitamin C deficiency, of all things. And I, I felt terrible. I, I had severe brain fog and fatigue, and, and I, I was having lots of anger. And I, I just didn't feel like myself emotionally. I felt depressed when I really felt like I didn't have any reason to be. And I feel very thankful that I found hair mineral analysis. I was searching on the internet for uh, you know, natural cures for adrenal fatigue and also doing research on infrared saunas at the time and found uh, Dr. Lawrence Wilson's website and started my own hair mineral analysis uh, program. And I was uh, amazed at how, how quickly I felt better. Uh, I started sleeping better. Um, over, you know, it took time for the brain fog to clear and for the fatigue to improve. Um, but today, I feel amazing. And I know that I could not have achieved that unless I had mineralized my body, balanced my minerals, and removed the heavy metals and chemicals that were interfering in my body's metabolic function. And I continue to detox and I continue to work on balancing my minerals. And I'm a work in progress like all of you, um, but I just wanted to uh, profess my love for a hair mineral analysis. Uh, and as you'll see on the podcast, Dr. Bruce Jones is absolutely in love with hair mineral analysis. Uh, because as a medical doctor for 35 years, he began, he was very, very frustrated uh, that his patients were not getting better. And it was only when he found hair mineral analysis and uh, balancing their minerals and detoxing them, did they actually truly become better, reverse their, their, their health conditions and uh, regain their energy and their mental clarity and were able to function. People that have been sick for 20 years who no physician had been able to help. And that's because many doctors are not addressing the underlying root cause of disease, which are mineral deficiencies and heavy metal toxicities. So we're going to delve into that today on the program. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Bruce Jones. After working in general practice as a physician for many years, specializing in chronic pain management, he completed a diploma in horticulture, of all things. In late 2010, Dr. Jones was subsequently invited by Professor Avni Sali of the National Institute for Integrative Medicine in Hawthorne to develop courses in integrative medicine for both medical and natural health professionals, as well as for the general public. 
There, he was a senior lecturer, both in course development and postgraduate medical education. Several years ago, Dr. Jones completed an advanced diploma in nutritional medicine and subsequently set up his practice, Peninsula Clinical Nutrition in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Wendy. Great to be with you. Yes, I know we we do a lot of talking on the phone or on Skype. We, you know, I know we're de- definitely becoming very, very good friends. So I'm really <laughs> happy to have you on the podcast and love having you as a mentor and colleague. Uh, really have learned a lot from you. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your story and how you got interested in hair mineral analysis and metal toxicology? Righty. Well, I was born uh, and bred here in Melbourne. Uh, did my uh, training in medicine and surgery at the University of Melbourne and graduated in 1980. Uh, much of my professional career I've spent as a family general medical practitioner, just doing the routine sorts of things. And I, it was very interesting, but I found that there were a proportion of patients who you could never really help. Um, you do all the standard medical tests that all come back pretty much negative, occasionally sort of something a bit odd here or a bit odd there. But overall, these patients were sick patients, but you could never, with conventional medical testing, really work out what was going on. So some years later, uh, I uh, decided that, yeah, for, for personal reasons, more out of curiosity than anything else, I decided to send off some of my hair to do a hair mineral analysis. And lo and behold, there are all sorts of unusual things on it, <laughs> you know, like uh, lots of arsenic and some aluminium and sort of all these funny sort of things like sodium and potassium going through the roof. Um, and uh, I didn't, you know, couldn't make head or tail of it. Um, so then I went to a... Um, a lecture, or actually a seminar really, uh, run by uh, a laboratory here called Interclinical Laboratories, who are the Australian distributors for Trace Elements Incorporated, and uh, opened my eyes to what hemineral analysis could really offer for someone uh, in their life. It just uncovers an enormous amount of um, biochemistry, a whole lot of uh, physiology and toxicology that you cannot simply do with blood tests or urine tests. They just don't give you the same data. And, of course, with a hair test, you're testing tissue, tissue levels. Hair um, grows at about a centimetre a month on, on the scalp. And so when you harvest uh, hair from the, the back of the head uh, or the nape of the neck, you're actually looking at a snapshot of what has been happening biologically in a person's life over the preceding three to four months. And uh, this is invaluable. And I've used that extensively in my own practice now uh, and uh, uncovering just answer, answer after answer after answer for why people are chronically ill. Yeah, I'm amazed at how it really helps you put the pieces of the puzzle together to figure out what's wrong with someone like nothing else. Yeah, precisely. Precisely. Nothing else will do that. Nothing else on this planet. I I believe, personally believe, that after many, many years in general practice, 
that hemianalysis properly conducted, and that's underline those two words, properly conducted, uh, is the singularly best screening tool for human health. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's inexpensive and it's simple to do. It's easy to sample. And, and let's talk about the labs. Uh, you like Trace Elements Labs, the same lab that I use. Why do you use that over ARL? Of course, we know all the other labs wash the hair, so they're, uh, they're useless uh, for data yes. for sodium potassium. Absolutely. So why do you use uh, Trace Elements Labs? Okay. So in comparison with ARL, for example, whilst uh, I have sent, uh, I've done split sample testing, to both labs, in other words, taken a, a, you know, a, a good sample of my hair, dissected it into many, many little pieces and sent half off to ARL and half off to trace elements. And on the whole, their uh, figures are very, very, very similar. Okay. So in terms of accuracy, yes, they're both very accurate laboratories. They use the same methodology. They use very similar equipment. Um, so you would expect that. However, it's in the reports that uh, is the key difference. Uh, trace elements tests, I think there's a 36 or 37 elements, something like that, whereas uh, ARL only tests about 20, 21, 22. 23. 23. 23. Yeah. So there's a lot of elements there that are just missing out. That's the first thing. The second thing is that they have far, far fewer ratios and ratios are fundamentally important in understanding the relationship either between one mineral and another mineral or between a mineral and a metal. And uh, trace elements provides a lot of those ratios that we need, um, but ARL doesn't, which is a drawback. The third thing is in the presentation. The, um, the presentation of the ARL reports is easy to read. It's colour-coded, easily tabulated. Um, anyone can read them, whereas the, the ARL ones, unfortunately, really haven't progressed since Dr Paul X put it together in the 1980s, uh, and it's still the same sort of very, very dated format. It's not user-friendly. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, they're, they're the basic reasons why uh, Trace Elements is definitely the best uh, testing lab on the planet. I agree. I can't imagine. Uh, I used to use ARL for several years, but I can't imagine using anything except for Trace Elements labs because there are so many toxicities like uranium and, and other tin and um, yes. other ones like yes. thallium that are yes. fundamental to finding out if someone has these toxicities because um, you have to uncover this to be able to help them and it just isn't provided with ARL. So uh, to me, I, I just I couldn't consider any other lab except for trace elements. I, I agree entirely. Um, now, now, people sort of will com complain, of course, and say, but why don't you use, say, Genova or why don't you use doctor's data? And fundamentally, they have... Um, you know, stumbled into a methodological error by washing, uh, repeatedly washing their hair samples as an initial step in deionized water. Now, if you have a compound or a, a biological material which has got ions in it, 
sodium, potassium, copper, um, etc., magnesium, etc., etc., and you soak them repeatedly in deionized water, what are you doing to the ions? They're getting transferred from the what you're meant to be testing into this um, water medium, which you then t- toss out. But it gets worse. <laughs> oh, yes, it, it's not just that bad. They do something forbidden. They use some stuff called Triton X100, which is a product, uh, I believe, licensed by or owned by the Dow Corporation, and it's designed for cell biology. So in a cell biology lab, you've got to dissolve your cell membranes uh, to get at nuclear material so that you can extract the DNA for genetic analysis. That's its job. That works really well for that application. But consistently, it is not designed for other diagnostic work. In fact, it's for research use only uh, if you're going to use it at all. Uh, and the reason is is that it acts a bit like a soap and it disrupts the uh, mineral content of a biological um, sample. Uh, and and, it's, and the, the distributors state very, very clearly on the, um, you know, sort of product information, um, you know, that is only to be used for cell biology. It is not to be used for any other diagnostic testing. And yet all these other labs ignore their, you know, manufacturer's recommendations. They continue using Triton X100 and it simply invalidates all their single valent uh, cations. That's anything with a one plus, such as sodium or potassium. It, and what uh, are the other ones? You said magnesium, copper, any other ones that it invalidates or reduces on a hair mineral analysis? All your divalent cations, all your monovalent cations. So uh, such as lithium, potassium, uh, affected very, very greatly. The divalents are proportionately, but not to the same extent. And the trivalents, well, and metals hardly at all. Okay, but that's still no good. We don't want false results, regardless of their reference ranges. When we're engaged in the type of looking at patients' health, we're looking at homeostatic mechanisms. In other words, the body has all these mechanisms designed to maintain the constancy of the chemical environment in cells and in tissues, in plasma, in blood, whatever it be, there is a constant, there's all sorts of sophisticated mechanisms. Um, all mammals have, not just humans, but all mammals have, at regulating their internal environment. So if you're produced, if you're a lab and you're, because of your faulty methodology, you're actually producing results which are wrong, then clinically that results in decisions which have to be wrong. Yeah, you end up giving the wrong supplements. You get end up giving the wrong advice, and I see this every day. Yeah, so you feel that any protocol that's based upon Genova or doctor's data has to be fundamentally flawed. Correct. Yeah, never use them. Yeah, they're fine for fine for anything else. Yeah, now, don't get me wrong; they're perfectly good laboratories, but if you have the wrong methodology to start off with, you're going to produce the wrong results. Yeah. Simple, basic stuff. Yeah. 
Okay. So let's talk about some of the minerals. Uh, there's a lot of debate about whether people should supplement certain minerals. So let's start out with calcium. Um, yep. What are some of the signs of a calcium deficiency? Okay. You might, generally, there are very few signs of calcium deficiency um, when you're considering calcium levels in the bloodstream. Okay. A condition we call hypocalcemia, which is pretty rare. Don't, don't see it, hardly at all. But there is a typical symptom, and it's called carpopedal spasm. And that is that the both the hands and feet, and I'm going to try and show your, your listeners what happens here. This is, this is going to be very interesting yeah. to see <laughs> what happens. See, see what that hand there? Yeah. That goes into a very, very painful spasm, mm. and it's, it's really awful. And it's due to a low level of ionised calcium in the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Incredibly rare. Yeah. Okay. okay. But otherwise, you may be depleted of 30 or 40% of your total body calcium stores before one day you trip over something unexpectedly and break your wrist or your ankle or your hip joint and end up in hospital. That might be the first sign you've got calcium deficiency. Yeah. And yet, with proper testing through hair analysis and a couple of other tests that we run uh, as a result of our hair analysis reports, you can diagnose that. You can pick it up years and years before you end up on the floor in a screaming mess. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's uh, that's really a case in point of how you do not want to wait until you get sick or you know severely injured before you start thinking about your health and addressing your health. Prevention is key. Um, so, under what circumstances does one need calcium? Let's look at it uh, from a perspective of hair mineral analysis. I know a lot of my clients are listening, other people that are very interested in hair mineral analysis. Yes. So, the most common scenario is someone with a, a slowed metabolism. Say so they yes. have, uh, say, calcium of 100 or higher on their hair mineral analysis. Do those people yes. need calcium? Yes, because to be able to get a reading like that. Both Normally, calcium is paired with magnesium, so both of them are elevated. And so that's got to come from somewhere, and the obvious source of both is bone, all righty? So if you're, you know, the pH of blood normally sits at 7.40, but if you're somewhat acidic, you might be down to 7.38, 7.36, um, what happens is that there is a e relative excess of hydrogen ions within the bloodstream. That's got to be balanced uh, by things like calcium and magnesium. Uh, so that's going to come out of bone, and that is a leaching process. And if that goes on for year after year after year after year, your bones get thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. Eventually, they break. So anyone who has a calcium above that sort of uh, bluey-purple zone at the top there of the chart, you need supplementary calcium. But you also need vitamin K to go with that calcium. Now, I'll just spend a minute talking about the relationship between calcium and vitamin K. Vitamin K we get from leafy K1, 
we get from leafy green veggies, okay? So, um, and, and that's really important for blood coagulation. Um, but there's another form of vitamin K called K2. Uh, we produce a little bit of it ourselves from our gut bacteria and it's found in fermented foods such as natto, which is definitely an acquired taste. Um, but generally, if you're going to have calcium, you want to tell it where to go and where to stay put. You don't want it like a guided missile travelling throughout the body and ending up in the wrong spots. Yeah, I like so, how you said that uh, calcium is really stupid and it has to be told where to go. <laughs> it's an unguided missile. Yes. <laughs> Vitamin K1 and K2 basically tell it where to go, yeah. which is in bone and teeth uh, and not into coronary arteries or uh, carotid arteries. Uh, where it causes trouble. So you must, must have a source of K1 and K2, uh, and most people's K2 production by their gut bacteria isn't sufficient to prevent calcium staying out of coronary arteries. Uh, That's why you you really do need supplementary K1 and K2 uh, to ensure that it stays in bone. Okay. And so let's say someone has uh, a fast metabolism. So that's denoted by a lower calcium, maybe a calcium below 42 on a hair analysis. Of course, the ratio between calcium and phosphorus. So if someone has a fast metabolism, do they need calcium as well? Yeah. And that's sort of the opposite situation where they're not actually absorbing sufficient calcium from their diet either their dietary intake of calcium-rich foods is low or they're not absorbing the calcium due to problems with the calcium channels in the gut lining. So they may not, although they might be getting plenty of calcium, they might get 1,000 or even 1,500 milligram a day from their diet, uh, only a a relatively small proportion might be absorbed and that's um, reflected in the quantity of calcium that you see in a hair analysis report, okay? So these people will need supplementary calcium. And in some instances, we've got to go looking at uh, why they're not absorbing enough. And look, by far and far away, the commonest cause is vitamin D deficiency. Mm. A small amount of calcium can get into the bloodstream outside of the calcium D-dependent calcium channels, okay? But it's nowhere near enough for what your body requires each day. So vitamin D comes into the equation, and vitamin D is absolutely essential for the regulation of calcium metabolism. Yeah. You've actually written a course on on vitamin D, uh, very, very extensively researched it. I read over it and was really uh, blown away by the amount of research. And of course, the entire medical community is pro-vitamin D, obviously, uh, for good reason. So why don't you tell us your thoughts on why almost everyone needs vitamin D? Okay. Um, Very simply that we were designed to be an outdoor plant planted in a nice tropical environment where you've got plenty of UVB radiation converting cholesterol in the skin to vitamin D in our bodies. And there have been a number of studies of um, 
you know, vitamin D levels in different populations in Africa and Australian um, surf lifesavers. And um, they, they find that they have very, very, you know, substantial levels of vitamin D that occurring naturally. But, of course, that's an idealistic world and the vast majority of people on the planet live away from the tropics uh, and probably three-quarters of the world's population do not live in the tropics and uh, consequently the further that you go away from the equator, the less available vitamin D you can manufacture from your skin uh, in response to ultraviolet B radiation throughout a whole year. So once you get, say, a latitude where I'm speaking from, 35 degrees south, um, we can't manufacture vitamin D for at least four months of the year. It doesn't matter if you start graving naked and spent two hours in the midday sun, what there is of it at the moment, because it's winter here in Melbourne, um, you're never going to make one ounce of vitamin D. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is reflected by study after study after study where there is a diurnal, well, well not the change by day to day, but there's also a seasonal variation where vitamin D levels are maximal at the end of summer and minimal at the start of spring. Okay, that's interesting. The flu season seems to be maximal through winter going into spring. I wonder if there could be a correlation there. Mm-hmm. And of course there is. And of course there is. The lower your vitamin D levels, uh, the lower your ability to handle viruses, which are very prevalent through the winter months, particularly if we're indoors, we're in offices, we're you know, breathing in what other people breathe out. Same in shopping centres who have these wonderful air conditioning units that recirculate bugs right through the centres. Um, you know, just for a freebie for their, um, you know, customers to take home with them. Uh, You you know, it's this sort of thing and it's entirely, entirely preventable, okay? Um, There's lots of other studies. For example, the frequency of multiple sclerosis is inversely related to latitude. So the further you go away from the equator, the exponential rise in your risk of multiple sclerosis. All the research has been done. It's out there. You know, there's no point burying your head in the sand and saying, oh, you know, I'll just hang on to this little theory that vitamin D is not necessary. Um, No, look at the research. Go on to Google Scholar. Um, You can spend days and days and days and days looking at Google Scholar, looking at the hard evidence. Um, The renal physicians are very, very much pro-vitamin D because they see the effects of low vitamin D in their renal failure patients. Um, A year or two back, the American Society of um, Gerontological Medicine, in other words, geriatricians who look after elderly folk, came out with an amazing statement which said that every single a uh, patient in a nursing home should have 4,000, correct, 4,000 units of vitamin D orally per day. Now, 
for them to say that, there must be a lot of hard scientific evidence for um, a, a body of physicians who are responsible for caring for the elderly to come out with that sort of statement. And they're quite right. They're absolutely right. In fact, some patients will need a lot more than 4,000, but 4,000 is a very good, solid um, start. Yeah, and there's some uh, people that postulate in the hair mineral analysis world that taking vitamin D will lower your potassium levels on a hair mineral analysis and keep that level suppressed. Uh, what is your thought on that theory? And that's uh, primarily coming from David Watts from the Trace Elements Laboratory. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, in my case, my potassium is often off the scale when I'm under, uh, under a stressful period, and my vitamin D levels uh, would be regarded as very high. So there's, certainly in my case, that does not hold. And I've certainly never seen it in anyone else. So I'm not quite sure where Dr. Watts is uh, coming from there. He and I do have some differences of opinion um, over the years, but that's all right. Um, he's a laboratory scientist. I'm a clinician. I actually have to treat patients. He has to run the laboratory, yeah. and which he does very, very well. Um, but laboratory scientists should realise they're not clinicians and what they think might happen in the real world doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, yeah. And so what are your recommendations for vitamin D? Uh, like how many IUs per uh, kilogram or pound uh, should people be taking per day? Okay. Unless you're a nudist who lives in the tropics, <laughs> I recommend 1,000 international units of D3 per 10 kilogram, that's 22 pound, of body weight per day, mm -hmm. all year round. Okay. You see, the body has a really nifty way of regulating vitamin D levels. If it's too high, it gets rid of it. Uh, if it's too low, it tries to increase as much as it can from dietary sources. Again, coming back to what's called homeostasis. So the key is, I, I use that as a starting point. So if you're, um, say, 70 kilograms, okay, you need 7,000 IU. If you're 80 kilograms, 8,000 IU. 50 kilograms, 5,000 IU. You take that for three months. Uh, supplements are easy to get. You can get them in 5,000 units, 1,000, 2,000, just to make up the you know, quantity that you need for a day please make sure that you take it with the largest meal of the day, something that's got some fats and oils in it because it is a fat-soluble vitamin. Vitamin K is likewise a fat-soluble vitamin. So please take your vitamin D and vitamin K together. All righty? And vitamin E because that's fat-soluble as well. Yeah. Um, so the three of those can go together after the best meal of the day and then check your blood levels after three months and then adjust it. And the levels that I really like to see, uh, and you may like to write this down uh, as a record, <laughs> it is 120 to 180 nanomoles per litre if your lab is in metric. And that correlates to... What about 45 to 65 nanogram per mil? I think that's, I think that's pretty right. Yeah. But say the cutoff is 30 nanograms per mil for whether you're 
deficient in vitamin D. I think that level is wrong. The Institute of Medicine hasn't got it right um, here. They actually need to increase that to a deficiency of certainly below 40 nanogram per mil and your ideal levels from 45 to 65. Now, that then leads into a question, oh, what about vitamin D toxicity? Um, you know, this dreadful, dreadful disease that, um, you know, it may be self-inflicted. Well, the thing is I've never seen it in my lifetime because I've never seen a vitamin D level over about 220. In the research literature, uh, in fact, you can't, um, there's no cases of vitamin D toxicity below 375, and that was one case yeah. in the literature. The rest of the cases are all above 500. So to get that amount, you have to be taking an enormous amount of vitamin D. You've got to go nuts on this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you take it sensibly and at, at the levels, 1,000 international units per 10 kilogram or per 22 pound uh, of body weight each day, with food, you are going to have a nice, healthy vitamin D level and it'll stand you in very good stead for your health the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I recently started my vitamin D again as well. I had stopped it for a, a period of time based on some research that I had read. But, you know, this research is, uh, you know, a fish out of water. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's like 0.001% of research that's negative on vitamin it's D compared to the vast majority of literature pro-vitamin D. So... I admit I was wrong. Uh, you know, I don't have an ego. I, I make mistakes sometimes. <laughs> I do. You know, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know everything. But uh, yeah, so I am pro vitamin D now. And uh, so that's what I'm going to be recommending to all of my clients. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about lithium. Uh, lithium yes. is a mineral that a lot of people don't really know about, don't really supplement, never really heard of it. Um, but I have found it's low in almost every single hair mineral analysis that I perform. Um, so, and including yours, you mentioned most of yours are low as well. So can you talk a little bit about lithium and why we need it and why we should supplement with it? Right. Now, lithium is an essential trace element. It's the third lightest in the periodic scale after hydrogen and helium. So just keep that thought in mind. It's a very, very light element. It occurs in the Earth's crust uh, in relatively small amounts. It's not abundant by any means. Uh, we've got far, far more sodium floating around our planet than we have lithium. And that's a problem because sodium displaces lithium. Alrighty, so just keep that thought in the back of your mind as, as we go on. Um, the vast majority, yes, you're quite right there, Wendy, the vast majority of patients are lithium depleted unless they are taking a supplement called lithium orotate. Now, lithium orotate is a very, very safe uh, nutraceutical uh, designed for replacing deficiencies in lithium to get that up to physiological levels. So we all need lithium. We need it, first of all, and this might surprise you, for insulin signalling. Now, insulin is designed to get uh, glucose 
out of our blood and into our cells where it can be used for energy. If you don't have enough lithium, and zinc is also needed here as well, the insulin cannot signal to what we call a glucose transporter to shove itself up to the cell surface, grab hold of that tasty molecule of glucose and shuffle it back to the mitochondria for them to do their job and gobble it all up and produce energy. Okay, so what you get with insulin with low lithium levels is a condition that we call insulin resistance. And we can very easily measure that from a fasting glucose and fasting insulin and then just perform the calculations. Very simple. Um, insulin resistance, people with high insulin resistance invariably become diabetics. Okay, type 2 diabetics, that is not type 1. Totally different process. Uh, so that's the first thing. It is needed for insulin signaling. The second thing is that it modulates, that's M-O-D-U-L-A-T-E-S, modulates the transmission of nerve cells that carry a neurotransmitter called glutamate. Now, what does glutamate do? Well, without glutamate, you would not, with, unless I had glutamate, and Wendy had glutamate, you would not be listening to our podcast today. Yeah. <laughs> okay? It gets the tongue working. It gets muscles working. In fact, every muscular movement in the body is initiated with the passage of glutamate between nerve cells in the brain. Okay? Now, what happens if you, you have too much glutamate and not enough of the uh, other neurotransmitter called GABA, which is needed to just um, act sort of like an accelerator and a brake in a car, whereas glutamate's the accelerator and GABA's the brake? Well, those patients cannot sleep. They're not sleeping very well. They're too excited all the time. That's right. They're hyperactive and um, can wear out. So fatigue can result from an excess of glutamate. And, of course, people with low GABA tend to self-medicate with benzodiazepines and with alcohol because they're the two things that activate GABA receptors to counteract the effect of glutamate. But naturally occurring lithium also modulates the effects of glutamate. Okay, remember that word? Modulate. <laughs> so that sort of dampens down the effect of excess uh, glutamate in the system. But you can't if your hair analysis tells you you're deficient. Okay, that's probably about 80% of uh, my patients uh, a glutamate uh, lithium deficient and that's related to Australia's geological history back in um, uh, a warm t uh, period in the earth's history a lot of Australia was an inland lake okay and being an inland lake uh, attached to the ocean you had a lot of salts now when an ice age came along the waters evaporated and the sea levels fell, and that salt was deposited in our topsoils. So we have a major issue uh, here in our irrigated areas in particular, but right throughout much of our sheep and cattle uh, farmland uh, where we have too much salt in the soil. 
and that has displaced whatever lithium was left. Uh, Australia is a very ancient continent and, um, you know, we don't have any recent geological history of note, not like a lot of other continents do. And so the lithium levels in our soils are very low. Consequently, it's very low in our food supply because our, you know, sheep and cattle uh, don't get much lithium. And consequently, our, you know, our fruit and cereal growing areas, they don't get much lithium. So we all become lithium depleted. The good news is, that's all doom and gloom, but the good news is it is very simple to use lithium orotate to get your levels back. Now, people will say to me, oh, lithium, that's that dreadful, horrible drug that <laughs> they give to these mad people. <laughs> they do, but it's a different type of lithium and it's called lithium carbonate and it comes in 250 milligram capsules, whereas here we're talking 5 and 10 milligram capsules. Yeah. So for heaven's sake, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't confuse the two. There are One different forms of minerals. <laughs> Absolutely. One is a pharmacological poison uh, listed on a poison schedule. The other, you can buy from Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer the Seeking Health brand. I have it in my store. Yeah. That's, that's the one that I like. <laughs> Good. Yeah, and I've heard you also need to have lithium to absorb B12. Uh, you need that as a precursor to absorb B12 as well. It's also important in the methylation cycle. And it's, again, something that works with zinc. Uh, it's involved in the function of methionine synthase, which converts homocysteine across to acetylmethyl uh, methionine, which is an essential methyl donor uh, that we all need. We all have some people don't have enough of, and that causes long-term um, uh, health problems. Yeah. Yeah. So, bottom line, need a hair mineral analysis to determine if you need lithium or not. Most people do. I know I started feeling better after I started supplementing a mere five yep. milligrams a day because yes. uh, it helps to make more GABA. And I'm deficient in GABA, like many, many people that are overstimulated today in our fast paced, yes. stressful world. Um, yes. Is there anything more you want to add about lithium before we begin talking about boron? No, I think that's probably enough information. Okay. Uh, it, it, it's really essential trace element. And, um, yeah, make sure you get enough of it. Yeah. So let's talk about boron. Uh, this is a not very popular mineral, um, but very, very important. Um, so why do we need boron and how do we get it in our diet? Okay. Now, boron is very interesting. It's in an essential trace nutrient and has uh, quite a lot of biological functions. Um, but most medical practitioners don't know a thing about boron, wouldn't have a clue. So first of all, where do you get it from? And the answer, number one, is fruit of all descriptions, and secondly, nuts and seeds. All righty. You can get it in vegetables, but in much lower concentrations. So when I see a hair result, and there's very low boron, the first question I ask is, how much fruit are you eating each day? And invariably the answer is virtually none. And that can be because the patient has a fructase deficiency, 
uh, or a problem with the fructose transporter. Consequently, they're getting a lot of irritable bowel symptoms and they go into a FODMAPS diet. And I'm all for a FODMAPS diet so long as you supplement with boron. Why do we need boron? The first and most important thing is bone strength, okay? Boron is involved in ensuring uh, boron along with strontium, which is another trace element, that you want in physiological amounts, not pharmacological uh, forms such as strontium ranolate, which uh, it poisons off what are called osteoclasts involved in bone remodeling. Uh, boron and strontium are both needed in the um, bone matrix to stabilize it and stop it falling apart. That's, the, that's in a simple sentence. Yeah. But it does more than that. And fairly recent research, but is very well validated because it's coming from several sources now, is that boron is also needed um, to, pre- to modulate the activity of the prostate gland in men and to a certain extent uh, breast tissue in women. Okay. Now, what they've found is that men who have high levels of boron, uh, by whatever means that you analyse it, tend to have very low PSA levels, prostatic-specific antigen. Now, PSA is actually an enzyme. It is produced by the prostate uh, cells normally in small amounts, but in very high amounts in prostate cancer. And generally, the higher the PSA level, the more aggressive that tumour actually becomes. Uh, These patients, again, rarely have fruit and vegetables or it's not getting enough into their system because boron is very, very potent at inhibiting this PSA enzyme uh, and it's involved in the breakdown of uh, cellular compartments. It's uh, what we call a serine protease, uh, S-E-R-I-N-E, which is a a fundamental amino acid which is involved in the building blocks of uh, most proteins. comes from your diet, meat, chicken and fish. Um, But... uh, Boron inhibits this enzyme which breaks down um, the, these uh, molecules so that it facilitates cancer once it develops from spreading initially within the gland itself and then outside of the gland to regional lymph nodes, to bone, etc., etc. Yeah. So there is some uh, research there out there with regards to breast cancer. Um, Boron is needed by women just as much as it is by men. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's, again, a central trace element. Hair is by far the easiest way of testing boron levels. Yeah. And so how much fruit per day do you think people should be eating? I would say on, on average two to three pieces a day. Really? And what yep. about those folks that uh, have candida and they're worried about feeding gut, but gut uh, parasites and gut dysbiosis, et cetera? What do you say to them? Find the underlying cause. Yeah. And it can be dietary, but it's more related to glucose and starches as opposed to fructose. Yes, fructose and excessive fructose, like if you're having four, five, six pieces of fruit a day and you're having a, a couple of teaspoons of sugar 
with every coffee. Um, you then uh, pig out on some donuts um, or some candy floss. Yeah, you're asking for trouble, uh, self-inflicted. Um, no question about that. But the other main cause of high levels of candida persisting is mercury, yeah. mercury toxicity. Mercury kills off the um, beneficial bacteria, particularly one called E. coli, in the gut, allowing candida, which might be there in very small numbers, minding its own business. Most people would never know they had it uh, and carry it to their dying day. Uh, but when it multiplies out of control because you've killed off some of the biological control, say with antibiotics, or with um, continuous flow of mercury into the gut from the liver, uh, and usually that's either methyl mercury from eating uh, flake or shark, swordfish, tuna. Tuna's a big one. Uh, I've seen patients with mercury toxicity purely from eating a can of tuna a day. Uh, so beware of that. Or they've got it from dental amalgams, which have been there for years and slowly rotting away, breaking down, releasing small, small but steady amounts of mercury into the system. It gets into the gut, kills off your bacteria, and lo and behold, you've got problems with thrush. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I really like that you're, you're pro-fruit because I, it's uh, never made sense to me. Uh, Dr. Lawrence Wilson is, uh, advises to eliminate fruit completely. I always felt that was counterintuitive um, simply because of the, the sugar levels in it because berries and straw, you know, strawberries are very, very low fructose and sugar. And yes. really incredibly nutritious. So, so many studies that show they protect brain health and so many other things, as well as raising boron levels and potassium levels, which almost everyone That's- is low in. Um, so fruit helps to raise both of those essential minerals. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, don't be fooled if you get so some standard blood tests back from your doctor, which shows that your serum potassium is, quote, unquote, within the normal range. That's fine. Blood regulates sodium, potassium levels, very calcium levels particularly, very, very carefully. So what's in your blood is nothing to do with what's in your tissues. They're totally different biological systems. They're regulated differently. Um, you need both. It's not one or the other. You need for your own, uh, you know, for your own health, you've got to take charge of your health. Nicola is absolutely right in that regard. You must, must take responsibility for your health and get the best advice that you can. And that's not, as a you know medical practitioner for many, many years, I'm telling you medic, medicine only has part of the answers when it comes to health. They are not gods. Uh, they only know, a, you know one component of what there is to know I've learned far, far more since I've, I've you know, gone into practicing nutritional medicine than I ever knew when I was con- practice, practicing conventional medicine. Yeah. Um, library has grown appreciably. Only a small proportion uh, of that you can see in the background here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think it's, you know, I don't want to say criminal. It's a little bit of a strong word, but it, it's... It's mind blowing to me that medicine doesn't look at the two key components that underlie 
chronic health conditions and disease, which are mineral deficiencies and heavy metal and chemical toxicities. And if your health regime does not address these two essential components underlying disease and fatigue and and brain fog, etc., you have no hopes of reversing your diseases. I couldn't agree with you more, Wendy. It's absolutely true. These are two things which should be key components of any medical school curriculum. But I would, you know, just wonder, you know, apart from maybe a short course on on nutrition, if you're lucky, uh, we did, but that was back in the 1970s. Um, Most people have forgotten it by the time they graduate and forgotten that it's actually relevant to human health because we don't see pellagra. We don't uh, recognise scurvy uh, or um, some of these other dreadful deficiency diseases. Beriberi, who has seen that since World War II? Um, Very common in in, um, American and Australian prisoners of war who survived the Japanese prisoner of war camps. A lot of them had beriberi simply because of, of the you know, severe vitamin deficiencies induced by living on a small diet of rice every day for years. Um, Yeah, so nutrition and heavy metal toxicology is absolutely fundamental to human health. So is environmental toxicology, dealing with environmental chemicals that we're exposed to. This should be an essential component of medical school education. Now, very interestingly... When you look back at uh, the ancient Indian um, system of medical education, going back um, to the subcontinent of India, back uh, 1500 BC, toxicology and nutrition were two absolutely essential cause of the Ayurvedic um, medical system of knowledge. Uh, because they recognised that people got poisoned by all sorts of things, whether they're eating the wrong plants or whether, um, you know, for whatever reason, they had become poisoned. Maybe they had been deliberately poisoned, as many as the Roman emperors um, uh, found to their uh, dismay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, poisoning, uh, even, you know, with arsenic in the 18th and 19th centuries, Arsenic was known as inheritance powder because if you had a spouse who was particularly <laughs> wealthy and you were really quite sick of them, you could just let a little bit of arsenic with every meal. They wouldn't taste it and slowly their health would decline and eventually they would expire. Yeah. <laughs> and very mourn at, their, mourn at their funeral and then go to the lawyer and say, now can I have all the estate, please? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but finally, the British Constabulary uh, cottoned on to this and they uh, found methods of detecting arsenic in uh, samples of hair and other body tissues. So that practice eventually stopped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, let me ask you a question that I like to ask all of my guests. What do you think is the most uh, you know, pressing health issue in the world today? Oh, my goodness. What is the most pressing health issue? We may have already answered it. (laughs) I I think the answer is depends on which country you live in. 
You ask that to people of Bangladesh. Okay, there's a lot of people in Bangladesh and West Bengal, the adjoining state in India. And what they will tell you, getting rid of arsenic. Number one, their top priority is getting rid of arsenic. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they uh, unfortunately happen to live uh, in, on a part of the earth where there's a lot of arsenic in the um, underlying uh, strata of the rock strata underneath the uh, topsoil, okay? And in Bangladesh, uh, the majority of the population have wells and they uh, develop chronic arsenic poisoning from just drinking well water. Uh, the United Nations had a program some years ago of trying to provide wells uh, for all the villages in Bangladesh, and it was a very honourable program. Uh, it, it has resulted in a vast reduction in uh, gut um, diseases such as cholera, typhoid, that sort of thing, which used to claim an enormous, um, you know, sort of um, number of victims every year. So that has reduced dramatically. But what they've done is substituted a bacterial uh, cause of death with a heavy metal cause of death. And what they're trying to do now is to deal, dig much deeper wells which get down below the uh, arsenic strata into uh, aquifers which are arsenic-free. But that's going to take a lot of time. And in the meantime, um, there's, you know, a lot of people suffering. It's the sort of thing that Bill Gates should be spending his money on yeah. uh, rather than trying to vaccinate the whole planet to death. And give them aluminum toxicity. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, give them all aluminum poisoning. Um, yeah, good on you, Bill. Yeah. Uh, they're far more important projects, I think, uh, the health of a whole nation there. And it's not just uh, Bangladesh. Taiwan, same problem. Southern Argentina and Chile, same problem. New Hampshire, same problem. It's New Mexico. Arsenic, arsenic issues. Arsenic, yeah. You've got certain areas of the states where, again, you've got a lot of arsenic in your rock strata, same problem. Yeah. And all the research is there. It's all published. All you got to do is go find it. It's there. Yeah, well, we're going to do another podcast very soon on uh, trivalent heavy metals like arsenic, yes. tin, thallium, and aluminum, and all of the health issues and mitochondrial poisoning uh, that they yes. promote and that are causing fatigue and brain fog throughout yes. our populations. So that's going to be a really, really interesting podcast. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about uh, where they can find you and your website if they want to work with you? Okay, now my website address is www.peninsula, P-E-N-I-N-S-U-L-A, nutrition, N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N, all one word, .com.au. Make sure you put in that AU, which of course is an Australian website. Yes. Uh, all the details about what I do and how to get in contact me are on that website, so please have a look at it. There's lots of useful information there. Um, I do much the same work as uh, Wendy in that I do a lot of consultations, often by Skype, uh, through patients around the world, and we basically look at the whole person. We look at the what are you eating, um, 
what you know what where have you been living what have you been exposed to have you been living near main roads or do you live in rural communities have you lived in big cities all your life that don't get hardly any sun um and we go through a, a process by which we can unearth the fundamental underlying causes of human disease. And uh, it's a fascinating journey. It takes time. It's like peeling an onion, uh, that there's lots of layers. We start off at the top layers. But when you and I have got the tools that can uncover what is wrong, and mainly I see patients who have been ill 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. I've even had a couple of patients who have literally been ill all their lives from very early childhood. And these are patients in their mid-60s and mid-70s. And we finally uncover the problem, which actually in both cases was lead poisoning acquired from inhalation of leaded petrols in large amounts when they were children. And they have not, they don't have the biological um, tools to get rid of this stuff. So it's poisoned them all their life. Um, get rid of the arsenic, get rid of the lead, get rid of the thallium, the aluminium, the mercury. Uh, it changes lives. Yeah. So, um, yeah, have a look at my website and uh, if I can be of assistance, uh, please contact me via email uh, and uh, we'll see what we can do to help. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I am uh, disappearing <laughs> because it's, I, uh, I'm at the mercy of the light, and uh, now it's dark. And this always seems to happen when I interview someone from Australia because yes. it's your yes. morning there and, and my nighttime. So time for me to go before I completely disappear. Uh, I have to catch my, my pumpkin and get my glass slipper. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Very good. We'll speak again soon. And listeners, you can learn more about me and my website, liveto110.com. You can learn about my healing and detox program, mineralpower.com, utilizing hair mineral analysis. And go to my online health program that teaches you all the basics of, you know, health that I've learned over the years and a very affordable online program at bodybiorehab.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.